a great pleasure to welcome today Fiona Woolard from the University of Southampton, before that from the University of Sheffield, um, who has recently written a book about notions of self-ownership called Doing and Allowing Harm, published by Oxford 2015. Um, and today is going to talk to us um, about some work closely related to that, I think, and arising out of it um, in a paper called Dimensions of Demandingness. Uh, just before I allow Fiona to begin, I should say that she also has another project in train, this time on the philosophy of pregnancy, somewhat perhaps interconnected with this project, is that right? But a new sort of topic really for mainstream analytical philosophy. So uh, very nice that you're here, Fiona, thank you. Hello, um, well I'd like to thank um, the organizers for inviting me and everybody here for coming along to hear me. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking about the demandingness objection. So, the demandingness objection is the objection that a moral theory or principle is unacceptable because it's too demanding. It asks more of us than we can reasonably expect. The demandingness objection is classically associated with act consequentialism. However, it's been applied to many other theories and principles, virtue ethics, Scanlonian contractualism, Kantian ethics, principles of distributive justice, and principles of beneficence. However, the demandingness objection itself faces a powerful family of objections. David Sobel, Shelley Kagan, and Liam Murphy have all argued that the demandingness objection doesn't work because our intuitive understanding of what it is for a moral theory or principle to count as demanding doesn't stand up to scrutiny. So the claim is that the demandingness objection only appears plausible because it implicitly appeals to moral distinctions between different types of costs. So some costs are seen as relevant to demandingness, while others aren't. And the demandingness objection makes this implicit distinction between different types of cost without providing any kind of justification for making those distinctions. If no such justification can be provided, then our appeals to the demandingness objection are going to fall apart. Sobel raises an additional worry. So Sobel focuses on versions of the demandingness objection which are applied to act consequentialism. And he claims that even if we can find some justification for drawing distinctions between different types of costs, there's going to be a problem for versions of the demandingness objection which are applied to act consequentialism. And this is because, he claims, to accept that 
different types of costs are morally distinct, is already to reject act consequentialism. So Sobel argues that even if we can find some kind of justification for drawing these distinctions, we're not going to have an independent demandingness objection to act consequentialism. Our reason for rejecting act consequentialism will be whatever justifies drawing the distinctions between different types of costs. We're sort of only allowed to make the appeal to demandingness once we've already rejected act consequentialism. So my plan is to respond to both the general worry and Sobel's more specific worry. I'm going to set, up, set out a couple of sets of cases, each of which are supposed to illustrate a way in which we implicitly draw distinctions when we apply the demandingness objection. I will argue that we can explain both sets of cases, but each appeal uh, requires appeal to a different aspect of the demandingness objection a different dimension of demandingness, if you want a reference to the title of the talk. So, let's begin with the cases. The first case is the kidney case. And this comes from Sobel's paper, The Impotence of the Demandingness Objection. It's also on your handout. So in the kidney case, Joe has two healthy kidneys and can live a decent but reduced life with only one. Sally needs one of Joe's kidneys to live. Now, intuitively, we would say a moral theory or principle which required Joe to give up his kidney to save Sally would be too demanding. It would be asking too much to expect Joe to give up so much. But Sobel points out that a moral theory or principle that doesn't require Joe to give up his kidney to save Sally seems to ask more of Sally than a theory or principle which required Joe to give up his kidney would ask of Joe. So Joe would be required to give up his kidney, which would lead to him living a decent but reduced life. Sally is going to die if she doesn't get Joe's kidney. That's a higher cost. And yet we don't tend to think that a moral theory or principle which doesn't require Joe to give up his kidney demands very much of Sally. So there seems to be some distinction being drawn there between different types of cost. The cost to Joe seems to count to, uh, towards demandingness, but the cost to Sally doesn't. So we need some kind of explanation for why those costs count, the costs to Joe count, but the cost to Sally doesn't count. Our second set of cases are the inheritance cases. And these are based on uh, cases put forward by Shelley Kagan in The Limits of Morality, 
although I've changed some names and I've added some details to Kagan's original case because I thought it, there were some explanatory gaps, so I filled those in, possibly making it a less, uh, less snappy example. So, in the first inheritance case, Shelley's rich uncle will leave him $1 million unless Shelley tells him to donate it to famine relief. This donation could save many lives. In the second inheritance case, Sam's mother is pregnant with a boy. If Sam's rich, old-fashioned uncle dies before her mother gives birth, Sam will inherit a fortune. If not, her baby brother will inherit everything. The uncle is currently in good health, so is unlikely to die in time unless Sam kills him. Now again, we would typically see a theory or principle which required Shelley to tell his uncle to donate the money to famine relief as asking too much. It's too much to expect Shelley to forego the prospect of inheriting $1 million. But we don't normally see a theory or principle which forbids Sally from killing her uncle as asking too much. We don't think it's asking too much for Sally to give up the prospect of inheriting $1 million. But the cases have been carefully designed by Kagan so that the costs are the same and the same type of cost. In both cases, the, the prospect of inheriting $1 million, which is at stake. So again, we need to explain why we draw this distinction between different types of costs. Why we will typically say that a theory or principle which requires Shelley to give up his $1 million is too demanding, but a theory or principle which requires Sam to give up her $1 million is not too demanding. So those are the two costs, uh, two cases. Let's begin with the kidney case. So I'm going to defend our intuitive, uh, intuitive understanding of demandingness in the kidney case by arguing that the demandingness objection is about what's demanded of the agent and thus appropriately focuses only on costs to the agent as an agent. Which means that because a theory that required Joe to give up his kidney to save Sally would put costs on Joe that he would suffer as an agent, those costs count towards demandingness, whereas a theory or principle that didn't require him to give up his kidney would not put any costs on Sally as an agent. Um, that's why we count the costs to Joe as being demanding, but we don't count the costs to Sally as being demanding. So what do I mean by costs suffered by an agent as an agent? Well, what I mean is costs suffered by an agent that she has the opportunity to avoid 
but only by failing to conform to the relevant moral demand. So they're basically the costs that the agent suffers because she chooses to comply with the moral requirements. Now, my claim is that these costs generate a distinctive objection, the demandingness objection, because they have a distinctive structure and thus they give rise to a distinctive question. Now, the idea that the demandingness objection should uh, focus on costs that are suffered as an agent fits with the sense that the demandingness objection is about what is demanded of us. So as Brian McKelvey says, something is being demanded of an agent in a way that it has not been demanded of the patients. It is the agent alone who is being called to action by the theory. Now, uh, Sobel calls this argument the linguistic argument and is pretty scathing about it. So he says, what's the force of pointing out these are the costs which we should call demands? That's simply going to leave us waiting for some kind of justification, some kind of explanation of why those costs which we call demands are at all morally interesting or particularly worthy of attention. Without such a justification, then we just end up with a toothless demanding a subjection. And I agree with Sobel that simply appealing to what we call a demand is not going to be very effective. It's not going to be enough. But I still think we should pay attention to the linguistics. The word demand and its cognates show up all over discussion of the demandingness objection. Of course, the very name of the objection includes the word demandingness. But we should also look at the way in which people explain the demandingness objection. They normally say it's... It's about theories or principles asking too much of us or demanding more of us than it's reasonable to demand. So I think we should take seriously the possibility that the demandingness objection is concerned with what is demanded of us. And we should look to see if we can find anything particularly interesting about those costs which are properly referred to as demands. If we can find something distinctive about those costs, which gives rise to a distinctive worry, then I think we'll have made a good case for a demandingness objection which focuses on those costs. And to spoil the surprise... I think that we can find something distinctive about those costs, which are properly called demands. And that's because of this distinctive structure that I mentioned a little bit ago. So the distinctive structure that I think demands have, or those costs faced by the agent as an agent, 
is that the agent must choose between accepting the cost and failing to conform to the moral demand. It's only when I face costs as an agent that I have this kind of choice. If I suffer a cost as a patient, then there's normally no way that I can avoid the cost. It's imposed on me by somebody else. Sometimes I have a choice where I can avoid the cost by having some other greater cost. But it's not normally a cost between, well, it's, it's never a cost, uh, a choice between facing the cost and failing to conform to the moral demand. And I think that because we face this choice, we have a distinctive question. The distinctive question that's raised by cases where this, we see this choice is questions about the reasonableness of expecting an agent to conform to the moral demands. So I think an underlying concern of the demandingness objection is the worry that some theories or principles ask so much of the agent that they mean it's not for the most part reasonable to expect an agent to choose to conform to the moral principle rather than bearing those costs. So that's what I think is the underlying concern behind the demandingness objection. Now, this idea of it being reasonable to expect an agent to choose to conform to a moral principle, I think that requires some unpacking. It's not based on the thought that morality must provide overriding reasons for action in the sense that any act that's morally required must also be rationally required. Um, this is a, an idea that's been discussed by Sobel, by others such as Dale Dorsey. Okay, so people have suggested that the idea that's behind the demandingness objection is some sort of thought that morality has to provide overriding reasons for action in the sense that any act that's morally required must also be rationally required. But uh, that's not what, I, what I'm trying to get at, at least. First, my focus is on the, the reasonableness of expecting an agent to conform to a moral theory or principle for the most part, or generally. So I might admit that Morality doesn't always need to be rationally overriding. I might admit that there can be cases in which morality requires a huge sacrifice. Such a great sacrifice that in that particular case, the agent is not rationally required to do what morality says. And that nonetheless that sacrifice is still morally required in that particular rare situation. However, I might still think that such cases need to be very rare. It needs to be, for the most part, reasonable to expect an agent to conform to the theory or principle. So I don't think that... Um, 
what we're trying to get at is, is, is some idea that morality must be always overriding. Um, secondly, I don't think that having this thought that morality must, must be such that it's reasonable to expect the agent to conform to it requires us to think that, that somebody who doesn't care about morality is in any way irrational. So we could agree with that, that somebody who doesn't care about irrational, about morality is wicked, but not irrational, and yet still think that morality must be such that it's for the most part reasonable to expect the agent to conform to it. So it's not about providing overriding reasons for action. Another idea you might try is you might think, well, must it then be about, about there always being sufficient reasons to conform to morality? But I don't think that can be it either. Because people who raise the demandingness objection don't need to, to think that those who, who perform uh, great, great um, moral feats at great cost to themselves are doing something irrational, that they don't have sufficient reason to do what they do. So you can say, yes, Mother Teresa had sufficient reason to make great sacrifices to help the poor, it would not be reasonable for that to be morally required. So I don't think it can be about there being, that about a requirement that there should be sufficient reason to conform to morality, because that's too easily satisfied. So let's have another go at unpacking what's meant by this claim that it must be reasonable to expect an agent to choose to conform to a moral principle. Now, what I'm going to do is give a, a rough sketch of one way of understanding this. It's deliberately a rough sketch because I think the details are going to depend upon one's view of the nature of practical rationality. There are several ways of filling in these details. And I don't want to take a stand on them, on which is the correct one. So I'm going to speak kind of vaguely. But I'd like to introduce two agents. We've got Alice and Zoe. So both Alice and Zoe are deciding how much of their money to give away to charity. Alice chooses to give away as much as possible, retaining only as much as she needs to stay productive. Zoe, on the other hand, chooses not to give any money away. Now, plausibly, they both have sufficient reason to act as they do. Neither acts irrationally. And we might suppose that they're both in relevantly similar situations, and so that the reasons there are to act in one way rather than another are the same for both. So despite this, the two end up with very different conclusions about how to act. Now, as I said, there are various different theories of practical rationality which explain what's going on here, how these two people can, without either being irrational, come to such different conclusions. So some theories might say that Alice is discounting 
her personal reasons. Others might say that Zoe is giving an extra weight to her personal reasons. There are different ways of, of explaining what's going on here. And I, I don't really need to take a stand on them. I want to remain neutral here. So what I'm going to say is that Alice gives other regarding or impersonal reasons a far greater role in her deliberation than Zoe does. Whereas Zoe assigns a greater role to reasons relating to her own personal goals and projects. And I want to call a way of assigning force to reasons in deliberating a reasons waiting. So a reasons waiting is a set of assignments of force or weight to reasons in deliberation. Now, this isn't meant to imply that deliberating is a matter of balancing reasons like weights on a cooking scale. I just mean a way of assigning a force and role to reasons in deliberation. Now, for any given reasons waiting, that way of waiting reasons is going to generate conclusions about how one ought to act. And I'll say that for a given reasons waiting, RW, an agent ought to perform a certain action X relative to RW, if and only if that reasons waiting RW generates the conclusion that the agent ought to X. So now I introduce the reasonable agent. So this is a person who has a reasonable concern to act morally, who gives moral concerns a significant role in generating conclusions about what to do, but also gives a more significant role to reasons springing from her own personal goals and projects than could probably be defended from a purely impartial reasons waiting. So the reasons waiting of a reasonable agent is the reasons waiting that gives both moral and personal reasons the kind of force assigned to them by a reasonable agent. And so with that kind of apparatus, I suggest that we should understand the demandingness objection as the objection that some theories or principles ask so much of the agent that on the reasons waiting of a reasonable agent, the agent ought not to conform to the theory or principle. So in other words, the theory or principle asks so much that giving both moral reasons and personal reasons the kind of force assigned to them by a reasonable agent leads to the conclusion that the agent has decisive reason not to conform. So this also leads to a translation of that underlying concern into what I call the reasonableness condition. And this is the claim that morality cannot be such that for the most part, on the reasons waiting of a reasonable agent, I ought not to do what's morally required. The idea is that morality should be such, should not be such, that for the most part, it asks more than us, more of us than we can reasonably expect. 
And I think this reasonableness condition fits with a plausible way of thinking about morality. I see moral requirements as standards which we have reason to hold each other to, standards which are supposed to guide our conduct and our expectations of each other. Moral requirements are supposed to do that job, to provide standards that we're supposed to be holding each other to, then it seems that they must meet this reasonableness condition. Now, this isn't the only way of understanding morality. So, Sobel discusses this picture of morality and rejects it. We also see it rejected by others, Singer, Dorsey, various people. And on their picture, you have a very impartial considerations which feed into what is morally required. And then once you've worked out what's morally required, you have to work out whether you should do what is morally required. It might be that doing what is morally required involves such great personal sacrifice that on balance you shouldn't do what is morally required. This is just, I find this picture really puzzling. Because surely it takes out of morality something that it's morality's job to decide. Part of the job of morality is to help us to work out when helping somebody or, or refraining from harming somebody would cost me so much that it's not reasonable to expect me to do it. Part of morality's job is, is to help us to weigh up our needs and the needs of others. So this kind of picture on which you work out what's required by morality and then you decide whether it's reasonable to expect expect you to live up to morality, this, this is a puzzling picture to me. And I think perhaps that's one thing that's an issue when people put forward the demandingness objection. It, it's, a, it's an issue of what is morality, what job is morality supposed to be doing? Now, before I finish um, this first uh, discussion of this first uh, case, the kidney case, I just want to make a little note about whether being required to give up a kidney is too demanding. Because the, the, the example starts with the thought that we will, we should think, we'll, we'll normally think that being required to give up a kidney would be too demanding. Now, I'm not completely convinced that a requirement to give up one's kidney to save somebody else's life is obviously too demanding. I think there might be situations in which it's not too demanding to be required to give up one's kidney to help a stranger. <coughs> um, however, the example is still relevant because the demand for Joe to, uh, to give up his kidney 
is relevant to the demandingness objection. That's a demand that he faces as an agent, and therefore that's the sort of cost that we should take into account when working out whether a moral theory or principle is too demanding, whereas the cost to Sally is not relevant. But in defending that, I don't want to um, assume that our, the view that it is too demanding for Joe to give up his kidney is necessarily the correct one. One thing I think might be relevant here is that the demandingness of moral theories and principles can vary in two different ways. So one question is, how much does the moral theory or principle require you to give up? And another question is, how frequently are you required to make that sacrifice? How likely is it that you are required to make this sacrifice? So there could be a principle which says, you are required to give up your kidney if you have a particular personal encounter with somebody who needs a kidney, which would have quite a high severity. It requires you to give away your kidney, but a low expected frequency because it doesn't require you to make that sacrifice very often. And I think that that demand would be a lot less demanding, that requirement would be a lot less demanding than a principle which said something like, if there is anybody in the world who requires a kidney and you have a kidney, you should give it up because it's that, that demand has both a very high severity and a very high expected frequency given the number of people uh, there are out there in the world who might want a kidney. So I think we need to be, we need to be careful when looking at, uh, looking at how demanding a principle or theory is. Okay, so let's move on now to the next set of cases. These are the inheritance cases. So remember, Shelley is about to inherit $1 million from his uncle, and his uncle says... Okay, so I could give you this money, or if you, if you tell me to, I will donate it to famine relief. And we think, is Shelley required to give up the chance of inheriting $1 million? And we say, no, that would be asking too much. And Shelley is contrasted with Sam, who would inherit $1 million, but only if her uncle dies before her baby brother is born, and he's in such good health that the only way he's going to die is if she kills him. And we ask, is it asking too much to require Sally to give up the prospect of inheriting $1 million? And most people say no. I'm actually going to respond to these cases by arguing that both these types of cost can count towards demandingness. They're both relevant to demandingness. So even though in one case the agent faces a cost that he will incur in order to avoid allowing harm, and in the other case he faces a cost that he'll incur rather than doing harm, 
this doesn't matter. So we don't draw a distinction, I think, between costs incurred rather than allowing harm and costs incurred rather than doing harm. Instead, I think that what's going on here, instead I think that what's going on is that you will very rarely encounter a demandingness objection that appeals to costs which agents face rather than doing harm to others. And this is because demandingness objections are put forward within an implicit context of inquiry where there's some set of uh, some comparison class which is either explicitly or implicitly fixed. And this comparison class doesn't typically contain theories which permit you to do harm to others rather than incur costs to yourself. And this means that it's not usually relevant in the context of inquiry, the cost that someone will face rather than doing harm. So let me first explain why I think we need to count both types of costs towards demandingness. So this is related to an, ob an objection that Liam Murphy raises about the demandingness objection. Well, he, he says that anybody who's putting forward a demandingness objection faces a problem. You are arguing that a theory or principle demands too much, that the costs are too high. If you're working out what costs a theory or principle puts upon an agent, you need some kind of baseline. So you're saying, this theory or principle makes him much worse off. Much worse off than what? What is your baseline that you're going to use in order to work out how exactly how much the theory or principle has cost the agent? And Murphy claims that many ways of choosing this baseline are going to fall into one of three traps. Either they're going to incorporate prior moral judgments, or they're going to leave us with a sense, well, why is that, why are the claims that a theory is demanding morally relevant at all? Or they're going to clash with our intuitions about demandingness. They're going to leave things counting as demanding, which we wouldn't intuitively see as demanding. Now, my baseline is the level of well-being the agent could reasonably be expected to achieve if she felt free not to comply with the theory. We hold other factors, such as the behaviour of other agents, constant. Now, I don't think this theory, this, this baseline, falls into the first two traps. So, I don't think it incorporates prior moral judgments, and I don't think that it casts doubt on the moral relevance of the demandingness objection, because it links up to uh, my argument that we have distinctive costs which raise distinctive questions. So I'm left with the third 
worry. This worry that I, I don't match what people intuitively count as demanding. And I may well seem to fall into that trap because on my view, it doesn't matter what the theory or principle is. It doesn't matter whether it's a constraint against doing harm or a constraint against allowing harm. The costs still count. There's no mention of, of things that I'm entitled to, not, nothing like this. So on my account, because if Sam felt free not to comply with the theory, she could, let's assume she's very clever and can get away with it, she could murder her uncle and get that $1 million. On my theory, that counts towards demandingness. So it might seem as if I, I, I fall into the trap of not matching our intuitive judgments about what counts as demanding. But as I say, I think I can explain this by appeal to this idea that when we raise a demandingness objection to a theory or principle, we do so within a context of inquiry. We have a class of comparison theories which is implicitly or explicitly fixed. So let me give, a, give an example. Uh, consider the frequent objections that act consequentialism is too demanding. I think that when this objection is made, the implicit class of comparison theories is probably common sense morality and some set of other academic moral theories, maybe rule consequentialism, Scanlonian contractualism, Rossian deontology, whatever the kind of set of not-so-demanding theories are. Now notice, none of these theories permit Sam to kill her uncle in order to inherit the money. So when we're trying to work out how demanding act consequentialism is, we don't typically refer to any constraints against killing your uncle in order to inherit $1 million. Because none of the relevant theories say that you're allowed to do that. So it's not relevant to working out how much more demanding the theory under attack is than the other relevant theories. Now, in order to try and bring this out, I think it's worthwhile considering another alternative to uh, act consequentialism. And this is Scheffler's hybrid theory. So Scheffler's theory is basically standard act consequentialism plus the inclusion of an agent-centred prerogative. So agents are permitted to assign a certain proportionately greater weight to their interests relative to the interests of other people. Now, if you specify that greater weight appropriately, you end up with a version of Scheffler's theory which requires agents to aid when common sense morality wouldn't, but also permits agents to do harm when common sense morality would not. Because common sense morality distinguishes between costs we face when we do harm and costs we face when we allow harm. And typically, 
according to common sense morality, it's easier to justify allowing harm to others than doing harm to others. But Schaeffler's hybrid theory doesn't distinguish between doing and allowing harm. So it treats costs associated with doing harm and costs associated with not allowing harm equally. <coughs> and therefore, it's going to, if we assign the, you know, whatever the, the proportionately great weight is, it's going to say sometimes people are, are required to aid when common sense morality doesn't think they are, but equally people are permitted to do harm when common sense morality doesn't think they are. Now, if we say that costs that are associated with constraints against doing harm don't count towards demandingness, then this version of Scheffler's theory would count as more demanding than common sense morality. Because after all, it requires agents to aid when common sense morality doesn't. But that doesn't seem right to me. I think what we should say is that common sense morality and the appropriate version of Scheffler's hybrid theory are equally demanding. It's just that they demand under different circumstances. So on my view, the demandingness objection might tell us to prefer either common sense morality or Scheffler's theory to standard act consequentialism. But if we want to make a choice between Scheffler's theory and common sense morality, we're going to need some further arguments. Here it's worth noting that no plausible moral theory is the least demanding moral theory. Probably the least demanding moral theory is egoism, moral egoism, which says you're permitted to do whatever's in your best interests. So when we criticise act consequentialism, we're not criticising it for being demanding at all. Instead, we're criticising it for being too demanding, for being such that it's no longer, for the most part, reasonable to expect agents to conform to it. So the implicit comparison set are, is some set of plausible versions of morality which, at least it's thought, do leave morality such that it's generally reasonable to expect an agent to conform to it. And the thought is that there are going to be some further arguments which aren't part of the demandingness objection which rule out things like moral egoism. It's not the level of demandingness that rules out moral egoism. It's some other good reasons. And similarly, it's going to be some other arguments which aren't part of the demandingness objection, which explains why we should endorse common sense morality rather than Scheffler's hybrid theory. So... In a way, Scheffler's right, uh, sorry, not Scheffler, Sobel is right, that we're going to need some additional arguments um, in order to um, choose between these other alternatives to act consequentialism and 
actually in these other arguments probably would be enough to reject at consequentialism. However, I still think that we have an independent demandingness objection to at consequentialism. And this is because, as I've argued, I think the demandingness objection has a distinctive ground. It's based on this thought about what can we reasonably expect of agents? Under what conditions is it reasonable to expect agents to make that choice, to choose to conform to morality? Secondly, even if the demandingness objection doesn't tell us whether to prefer common sense morality over Scheffler's hybrid theory, it's still done something because it said, well, you must reject at consequentialism and choose one of those two alternative theories. So it still ruled one theory out. And it might be that we have some other different grounds which rule out Scheffler's hybrid theory, but not at consequentialism. And so we need both those arguments in order to get to common sense morality. Assuming common sense morality is where we're going to get to. But so I still think that we have a demandingness objection which is doing independent work, which, which adds something to whatever arguments we might use to justify the distinctions between doing and allowing. Okay. So to sum up, I described two different cases or two different sets of cases which are supposed to illustrate this worry that when we appeal to the demandingness <coughs> objection, we draw distinctions between different types of costs and that these distinctions require justification. The first set of cases, the first case, the kidney case, I suggested could be explained by noting that we should only count costs faced as an agent towards demandingness. And that's because these are the only costs that are relevant to whether the theory leaves it reasonable to expect the agent to conform to morality. The second set of cases, the inheritance cases, I suggested these were going to be going to need a different tactic because we shouldn't say that costs from avoiding doing harm don't count towards demandingness. These costs do also count towards how demanding a theory is. Nonetheless, demandingness objections which cite these costs are going to be very rare because whenever a demandingness, is demandingness objection is raised, there will be some implicit set of, implicit or explicit, comparison class. And this doesn't typically include theories that allow agents to do harm in order to avoid great cost to themselves. But that's because we've got other reasons to rule out theories which permit agents to do harm to others in order to avoid great costs to themselves. Thanks.